Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we followed the growth of the Ottoman Empire from its inception and early years battling the Byzantine Empire through centuries of growth and change in which it became a massive power encompassing much of modern Eastern Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, and more. Today, we'll talk about how the rise of national identity began slowly eating away at this multinational power. Let's begin. Here on HI101 with Phil Downey. Yo. And we've been talking about the Ottoman Empire. Right. And so far it's been a, a pretty good topic, I'd say. There's a lot of stuff going on that's um, uh, very familiar just from us- usually the other perspective. Yeah, so. we're actually getting to see the uh, quote-unquote non-European side for once. Yeah, and even then, I mean... It's this still is, very it's European. <laughs> European. I mean, a lot of why we're getting to see a lot of them is because they interact with the rest of Europe so often. It's just Europe takes a very long time to sort of let go of the concept of like a pan-christian europe i suppose is the easiest way to put it yeah Uh, ottomans don't fit neatly into that order and they they don't really like it that much but in any case um when we finished up last time um we we kind of glossed over uh, a couple of um territorial losses that they were going through uh throughout the 1700s and early 1800s and i just kind of wanted to circle back around on a couple of those things and talk about like what exactly is going on with the Ottoman Empire? Like, why is it bleeding territory so quickly? One of the things that we talked about as well was the fact that almost progressively, the Ottoman Empire incorporated a lot of different types of people within its borders and incorporated them in, not just in sort of a, well, you, 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 I guess you can exist here and we'll make, you know, third class citizens out of you, but actually had systems in place to incorporate them into society. And a lot of that comes from the very Persian roots of the Ottoman Empire. If you remember way, way back when we talked about the Seljuk Turks rather than the Ottoman Turks, they came out of uh, Persia and brought a lot of Persian culture along with them. And traditionally, the Persians were, um, I was going to say good at, but I'm going to say better than others. (laughs) Less Uh, bad? (laughs) Yeah, less bad at incorporating uh, various ethnicities, religions, things like that. And that image of Persian-ness being sort of like a an elite standard to hold yourself to is something that continues throughout the Ottoman Empire. Um, you saw it when Osman found the Ottoman line and and based his governing principles on uh, Persian systems of government as well as Byzantine ones, right? And what you would actually see throughout the centuries is while everyone, well, not everyone, but while the majority in, in the Ottoman Empire would speak Turkish, 
uh, the elites, the the noble classes, would actually speak Persian, sort of the way that uh, you would see um, higher classes speak Latin earlier in the Middle Ages, or uh, even for a while in England, you'd see the, the upper class speak French rather than English, right? Interesting. There's that there's that elite tier language yeah. that's, uh, that goes along with it. And that attempt to incorporate uh, all of these different people was, it, it was a genuine one. They, they really did try hard to, um, to work that in. But the thing is, as borders consolidated as they stopped growing as what started as a, a, a muslim minority in the country it was basically just the turks and then a lot of other people that they ruled over they were forced to sort of become a little more conservative in terms of uh their their social policies so you know the early ottoman empire had been a pillar of scientific and technical progress right i mean they, they start off with a you know using gunpowder weapons against the walls of of constantinople for the first time and and that's a it's a pretty big statement piece right i mean they're they're bringing uh european military tactics uh, as well as mongolian military tactics against this old power using chinese technology to use you know to do so very effectively and it's you know that, that's a big entrance by the time you get to the 1700s i mean you're getting stuff like uh, the first artillery school that was established in uh, the Ottoman Empire, um, 1734, there was massive pushback on like a social level against it because they thought like, man, these things are like too destructive. Like we probably should stick to like traditional me uh, methods of battle. And they were making these arguments on the basis that like this stuff is like existentially evil. You shouldn't be <laughs> using it. It goes against God. And that's the kind of argument that you're going to get in what is essentially a progressive theocracy, mm. um, which they are but it also isn't going to win you battles and so like eventually the you know the, the artillery school is going to start up a couple of decades later but like in semi-secret it's like mm. a shameful state secret that they have to have this stuff around and it's a really good example of the fine line that the ottoman empire has to walk for a lot of its existence is this you know on one hand they're they're claiming to be well they're, they're claiming to be a caliphate which means that they're like a a religious leader in, in islam because they have this protection over mecca and medina you'll remember yeah but on the other hand like they do have to contend with like early modern european political and military uh rivals and that's that's not an easy thing to do all the time i mean uh, another really good example is that the uh the printing press you had guilds of writers in the Ottoman Empire who basically denounced the, the printing press as evil because, um, the, and the reasoning being that um, holy texts in uh, in Islam are supposed to be, like there can't be any changes whatsoever, and they believe that only uh, holy men can be tr trusted to properly uh, transcribe holy works, so it has to be done by hand. That's the argument that's being made. Also, this is these are craftsmen that are being potentially put out of a job by the printing press. But what do you say is the government of the Ottoman Empire? Yeah, that's uh, not a great spot to be put in. Right. It's it's a little bit crippling. And and this is a source of a lot of that um, stagnation that we talked about last time. You know, by 1800, only 60% of Ottomans are actually uh, Muslim. And that's because of this sort of um, progressive look at incorporating other uh, faiths into the, into the empire. You have... Uh, you, you still actually have a lot of uh, Orthodox Greek Christians. You have Assyrian and Armenian Christians uh, within the empire. Uh, you have uh, thousands and thousands of Jews, like all sorts of people that are worked into the system under something that's known as the millet system. And what the millet system means is that there are different sets of laws for people of different faiths and backgrounds. Mm. And this kind of cuts both ways because on one hand... 
to reach the top echelons of society, you're pretty much going to have to be Muslim. Um, there are certain rights uh, that non-Muslims simply can't hold. On the other hand, non-Muslims aren't actually held to Muslim laws. Uh, they're actually administrated under uh, Justin the Justinian Code from the Byzantine Empire, which at this point is like 900 years old or so. But it's a civil code. Like this is the basis for um, a lot of different uh, cr uh, criminal and civil codes at this point in time. I don't know. Being held to a 900-year-old set of <laughs> laws doesn't exactly sound great. No, but they're also not held to the same religious restrictions that all Mis all Muslim citizens are yeah. being held to. And what that means is that while all of these uh, Muslim, for example, writers are uh, unable to use printing presses until the 18th century, non-Muslims are allowed to run printing presses. Mm. This is very analogous, I think, to the way that uh, certain Jewish communities would have been treated in other parts of Europe, where on the one hand, um, segregated from society, uh, treated as second class citizens, on the other hand, for example, allowed to run financial institutions when uh, uh, Christian Europeans weren't allowed to, and thereby becoming fairly wealthy and uh, as a result resented. But you know, the cycle continues. There's advantages and disadvantages to each. And the weighting of that system isn't quite as clearly weighted towards one or the other in the ottoman system mm. you're definitely better off as a whole being uh being muslim than non-muslim but there are also there are also a lot of muslim people going like well what's going on like all these non-muslim people are allowed to do all these things that i'm not allowed to do sure they're being taxed at a much higher rate and sure they can't hold offices and etc 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 but you know they're getting a lot wealthier than i am and that just doesn't seem fair yeah it, it it's going to cause unrest on both sides while actually appeasing neither side which is <laughs> one of Sounds the great well it's one of the drawbacks of compromise like this right they're trying to please everyone and it's not yeah. really working that well however for the most part you're under an authoritarian regime and like what are you going to do complain about the government <laughs> so these millets are like it's not just muslim and non-muslim each sort of type of person is given uh, a specific uh, administrative uh, uh, system mm. uh, so they would look at, for example, the Armenian Christians that and go... That sounds like a bureaucratic nightmare. Oh, absolutely. Yes. They would look at the, bureauc the, the, the Armenian Christians and go, okay, well, the head of the Armenian Catholic Church is going to administrate all Armenians. Mm. And there's the Armenian Protestants that are going, well, this isn't fair. And the, the Ottoman government is going, I don't care. I can't tell the difference, basically. <laughs> uh, you're all Armenian. Figure it out yourselves. But those uh, administrative systems are still subject to the Sultan. They just have to... They're devolved, so they're accountable to them. They're just not directly administrated by. Right. Um, so as long as they're doing, you know, or as long as they're fulfilling all of their explicit obligations to the empire, they're kind of okay to sort of self-govern. The downside of this, of course, is what we talked about last time, where a lot of various groups start just leaving. You know, for example, in Serbia, they're going like, we're Slavic, and some of us are Christian, and you guys aren't doing anything for us. Like, why would we stick around, basically? And usually what ends up happening is that the Ottoman Empire, after some sort of armed insurrection, agrees to spin these territories off into sort of a vassal state where mm. they're not technically separated from the Ottoman Empire, but they're also kind of looking after their own thing as long as they're, you know, in deadlock military alliances and they're yeah. paying, et cetera, et cetera. But when you get to something like, uh, as we talked about, uh, Greek independence, which was really important to uh, various other European powers, like you're getting a pretty hard uh, separation there. You have like a fully independent state coming out of it eventually. 
and the amount of territory that the Ottoman Empire loses uh, over all of these um, separations is, is quite substantial. And there's not a lot they can do about it because the real problem with the Ottoman Empire in this ter- in this time period is that they are an old system. Mm. There's this idea that starts coming up throughout Europe of um, the nation state, the idea that every nation should have its own state. This becomes especially apparent in the early 19th century. Uh, the, there's, there's a series of revolutions in 1848 uh, that's sometimes referred to as the Spring of Nations. Yeah. And a, a lot of this comes out of ideas from the French Revolution, but this is, a, this is an idea that stretches back a, a long ways that, listen, if you are part of a big group of people that shares a national identity of some sort, you should have the right to self-determination and you should have the right to your own uh, political entity that has uh, full sovereignty. And that's just not how the Ottoman Empire is set up. You have so many various types of people spread out over the entire empire that it's like, it's really hard to make that work. Yeah, it's going to fracture them the most. And the way to administrate that while also respecting people's um, you know, grassroots desire for national identity and national independence, there isn't a good an- answer there. No, not really. Now, at the same time, Austria-Hungary is going through fairly similar things, but they have much more of a lockdown on their sort of internal uh, uh, situation than than the Ottoman Empire does. Not that they're never having any problems. They absolutely are. They're constantly having internal <laughs> issues. Um, but they seem to be doing a better job of keeping a lid on it than uh, than the Ottoman Empire is. Now, you're saying that uh, the Ottoman Empire is losing a lot of uh, territory this way. Like, mm-hmm. we Do we know, like, roughly, like, what percentage? Like, what, what sort of reduction in land holdings are we seeing? <sighs> I'm sure I could find it somewhere. It's not a it's not a number I really looked up. But I mean, the, the one thing I should mention is that like the Ottoman Empire is much bigger than you're thinking it is right now. Um, at the height of its size, the Ottoman Empire reaches you know further east than Anatolia into like modern day uh, Iran. Mm-hmm. It reaches all the way down the Arabian Peninsula. It incorporates all of Egypt, a good chunk of what is now Sudan. Uh, it reaches over into Tunisia, so North Africa. I've seen the map of it at the height of its at the height of its size. So actually, it is how big I'm thinking it is. Fair enough, but I'm <laughs> I'm imagining most people that are listening haven't yeah. looked at it yet. It is actually interesting to look at the map. It was real big. It was very big, yeah, and and up into the Balkans to the point where Turkey, or or rather the Ottoman Empire, uh, borders uh, Russia at, at two points. It borders it in the Balkans and it borders it on its eastern border where uh, Anatolia comes up the east side of the, the Black Sea. It's massive. They're real big. So yes, it is losing chunks. It's not losing a lot of chunks. Like it's it, percentage wise, it's not losing a lot of like acres, mm. but it's losing a lot of very key like strategic locations. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good way of putting it because you know the Balkans. The reason that they want those states in the Balkans is that that's what's between them and Austria, who mm. is a, a historic um, enemy ever since they went head to head in the Kingdom of Hungary. It's also what's protecting them from Russia, uh, at least on on the west side of the Black Sea. Like they don't really want to be losing those groups, and yet those are the groups that are more, most interested in leaving, and that's an issue. It's a lot like what happened to the Byzantine Empire when the Turks first came along, in that they have allies who are in the most important spots, going like, "Well, you can't protect us anymore. Let's go find our own thing to uh, do." Yeah. And that's a really, as we talked about at that point, a really dangerous thing for an, uh, to to have happen to an empire. All of this leads to some tough self-reflection. 
and an initiative that's known as uh, Tanzimat, which is uh, a Turkish word for organization. And this kind of goes from about 1839 to 1876. And what they're doing is they're looking at all of these issues that they're having and they go, okay, well, let's try and make enough changes that we can at least satisfy people to the point that they're no longer rebelling and declaring independence, which, all right, makes some sense. Now, Tanzimat is not going to go well, and I don't think that's necessarily the Ottoman Empire's fault, because what they try to do here is is quite revolutionary for who the who the Ottoman Empire was when it started and who they're going to be when it finishes. It's just going to be too little too late based on the global political uh, climate. Mm. Because we're skipping over some things in European history that would be very important for most European history, but we've talked about it in enough other places that that's fine. We're worried about Ottoman history here. Yeah. For example, the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. I was, was going to say, France is getting up to some stuff right now. Yeah, they sure are. I mean, the Ottoman Empire is is tangentially related to some of the Napoleonic Wars in that they fought Russia during them, which puts them sort of on Napoleon's side-ish, but in a very indirect way. And that's about as close to uh, involved as they get. Um, I think they were you know, nominally involved in a couple other alliances, but that's about it. They're trying to figure out their own house at that point in time. They're worried about um, specifically Greece, but a number of fires need to be put out. This All, all of this reorganization kicks off in 1826. You remember we talked a little bit about the Janissary Corps yes. last time. These are these uh, elite soldiers that turn into a very, very powerful uh, military and kind of politically powerful group. The Janissaries try to overthrow the Sultan, Mahmoud II, and they fail, which is the last thing you want to do when you try and overthrow the Sultan. Yeah. I mean, you kind of have two options. Yeah. You succeed or you fail. Generally, you want to succeed. And they have multiple times in the past. The Janissaries have, have overthrown multiple uh, Sultans that they didn't agree with in the past. So they try all of this and they fail. And Mahmoud II goes... This is fine. Uh, we just don't need any Janissaries anymore. Mm -hmm. And he disbands the entire corps. Now, normally when stuff like this comes up, you would execute the leaders. You might reorganize things. You might even shuffle units around to make sure that people who were conspiring are no longer able to conspire. Uh, you might clean house and rebuild. Uh, Mahmoud II went, no, this is an outdated system. We don't want this. Our military is clearly falling behind the rest of Europe's because we keep getting beat over and over and over again. This is an opportunity. And by 1839, so in a dozen years or so, uh, he has completely disbanded the entire Ottoman army and rebuilt it from scratch based on a European-style professional army. Dang. So he's no longer pulling up conscripts every time there's a, a, a war of some sort. He's no longer relying on slaves to fight. He's no longer... Because up until this point, what you mainly had when the Ottomans went to war is this core of Janissaries, and then a whole bunch of non-Muslims would be conscripted into the, into the army as relatively unskilled uh, combatants, and they generally wouldn't do all that well. Bunch of pawns. So... This this shifts military power into the hands of, for the most part, ethnically Turkish Ottomans. They start training soldiers as like an actual profession. This is a job that you do. You are a career soldier. It pays well. It's an opportunity for advancement if you uh, uh, are um, promoted high enough. And after your retirement, there's potential for uh, political office. Uh, all of the things that you would expect from a modern 
uh, professional army in the 19th century in Europe, which kind of seems like a no brainer mm-hmm. a little bit, but like you have to understand that he just undid like 400 years. Yeah. That's a big jump. Yeah. To go from Janissaries to professional army. Yeah. And he did it in the course of 13 years. Yeah. And this is an opportunity for them basically to go, okay, like what else can we modernize in this way? What else are we lagging behind on? Because clearly every time we go toe to toe with uh, Russia, who by the way, at this point in time is often held up as a measuring stick of pass or fail in various metrics as a nation. So are you doing better than Russia? If you're not, you're in trouble. Like they were considered bottom of the barrel. Yeah. And they still kept beating the Ottoman Empire over and over and over. And they were so sick of it. They were so tired of it. They go to work on, for example, the criminal code. They decide to completely do away with this multi-tiered millet system. Mm. There's too many people that consider it unfair on both sides. You know, Muslim citizens felt that they were being overly restricted by uh, uh, religious laws and non- Muslim citizens were feeling like uh, they were like the criminal co- criminal code was uh, overly punitive towards non-Muslims. So let's redo the whole thing, base it on the new French system, so the Napoleonic code, um, which is a pretty solid legal system, all things considered. He had basically taken that Justinian code that we talked about, uh, rewrote it for you know modern people, and it's one of the more impressive things that Napoleon did. We talk about the battles a lot, but that that legal quote dang like it's it's good (laughs) he did a good job good on you napoleon weirdly enough actually (laughs) this is this is a complete aside and probably most people won't care but um the province of quebec actually uses the napoleonic code for their civic law well there you go yeah like to this day i mean they're not the only one there's there's plenty of uh countries in europe in europe that use the napoleonic code or or a variant thereof but yeah uh, in in canada everybody else uses the the british system except uh except quebec for reasons yep Anyways, they also introduce a very, uh, this isn't even something that you can necessarily call a constitution yet, but they introduce a rudimentary guarantee of basic rights to all citizens. Now, this is not the same as uh, equality under law yet, but there are certain things that they're basically saying like, okay, all Ottoman citizens get, you know, a a fundamental right to life basically. Mm -hmm. And it's a start. You know, we're coming from a very authoritarian regime regime here. Are there other countries doing similar things or is this? Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. As okay. soon as the French Revolution goes down, yeah. it's Constitution City. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's going to get worse as the 1800s go on. Um, one of the biggest features of the revolutions of 1848 is basically every, con- or every country trying to get a constitution for itself. Gotcha. There's a bunch of other like administrative changes that kind of sound a little bit boring but like when they're all lumped together are really impressive things like for example the uh the first bank notes are introduced in 1840s they completely redo their currency system up until now they're using like fiat like precious metals Mm -hmm. coins still in the 1800s um not that they were the only ones lots of people used it when did that start switching over in other countries a few decades before um sometimes as much as a century before i'm not sure when like the first bank notes would have been but um, the, the move away from precious metals has been going on for a while. Remember, we talked a little bit last time about the uh, inflation caused by yeah, the silver. Yeah, um, it's it's been going on a while, and the Ottomans hesitating to do anything about it was a, a real issue for them. Uh, they improved their education system quite a bit. They realized that actually having well-educated citizens is a really important thing for national development. Who knew? <laughs> Take note. <laughs> <laughs> what a crazy idea. Um, <clears throat> In 1847, they abolished slavery. Hey. For men. Oh. 
uh i think we mentioned it briefly last time slavery was a little different in the ottoman empire you never completely yes. lost yeah. rights as slaves there were always um some rudimentary slaves rights not that it was a good thing but still it, slavery still slavery yes but not you know full-on ownership of another person yeah. um more extreme indentured servitude but they abolished it completely um again for men i think the latest i saw slavery for women in the ottoman empire was as late as 1908 all things considered that's not the worst yeah i suppose it's it's not great but again they're it's hard to take shots at someone who's trying to better themselves even if they don't don't get as far as you'd like them to yeah and and this they're is one of those moves. yeah they're, they're they're obviously trying hard and i mean there is some international pressure on that mm. by 1840s there's there's significant international uh movement on, on the issue of abolition mm. um britain has allotted for a few decades now it's it's gone from most of europe at this point so uh they're very much a, a holdout uh in the european continent in 1856 they finally get that guarantee of a full equality under the law regardless of ethnicity or, or religion which is a big step like that's a big deal yeah. in 1858 they actually decriminalize homosexuality really which seems really really early yeah is it I mean, it's one of those things that when you get into the, the history of the treatment of gay people, it's it's very, very difficult to really pin down what exactly yeah. the social mores are. Um, but in terms of like early. explicitly legalizing it, it's very early. Yeah. Uh, a lot of other places just sort of, you know, lumped in with other kind of things that seem so unthinkable that they don't need laws sort of thing. Yeah, because like, reminder, it is still illegal in certain countries. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now. Yep. Yep, correct. There's a bunch of other industrialization stuff that goes on, uh, telegraphs, railways, yeah. first telephone, things like that. Really big deals. Uh, they they completely overhaul their postal system. Again, I know this kind of sounds a little boring and nitpicky, but like, imagine living in a system with a non-functional postal service. Yeah. It's bad. Not great. It's real bad. And so it's all these like really boring administrative changes that they're making, but it's all being made in the service of trying to number one provide a more consistent citizenship experience for all of their citizens <laughs> you sound like an infomercial welcome to the ottoman empire now featuring a more consistent uh ex I, I, experience I, for citizens it's it's a weird concept to try and, and convey though but like that's that's what they're going for right like they yeah. want all ottomans to feel or all ottoman citizens to be equal under the law and that's not something that they've been able to do in the past so all this stuff that they're implementing now is almost all of this playing catch-up or are they are they actually innovating on any of this stuff almost all of it is catch-up yeah. yeah there's there's a few things that they're sort of just behind front runners with like and that's mm. and that's one um benefit of making broad reforms is that you can really take a look at some stuff and really abandon some traditions sure but you know they're they're nowhere close for example to britain or france on the yeah. uh, on the industrial revolution no, that makes uh, sense. they're behind on on quite a bit of this stuff and that's that's really one of the biggest failings of tanzimat is you know for example we we did a, a, an episode once on the the meiji restoration mm -hmm. where japan goes from far far behind in progress to one of the most advanced nations on earth simply by cherry picking all the best stuff from all the best players yeah the Ottomans Which back in the day was a very Turkish move. It was, but the Ottomans at this point are trying to once again strike that balance of tradition and progress. And 
they're not trying to just pick all the best stuff and make it Turkish. They're very conscious of how they're being compared to other European nations, which is a difficult thing to contend with, but also sort of limits you a little bit because when people are saying like, well, your, your rails aren't as good as, as British rails. Well, Great Britain is tiny. Mm, it's easy yeah. to have a little, you know, a, a really uh, dense, compact rail system that's really effective for all citizens. The Ottoman Empire is huge. Yeah. How are you going to effectively run rail? I mean, one of their biggest projects was just trying to connect Baghdad to the rest of Europe with one rail line. Mm -hmm. And that was a monumental uh, uh, achievement. And that's one rail line. Like, they're not providing the level of service that you can in Britain because you're not Britain. And it's not because they're, you know, poorer. It's not because they're less innovative. There's just an issue with geography there. That's a lot more rail to lay. So what's, what does the British Empire look at, look like at this point in history? And like, how how is it that Britain, which is this tiny little landmass, is somehow ahead of the Ottoman Empire, which has all this territory? So I'm guessing you haven't listened to the Industrial Revolution episode I yet. I got there yet. That would be your answer there. Okay. Uh, we do address it. Uh, the, the, the answer in a nutshell is number one, colonialism. Yeah. That's why I asked about the empire. <laughs> like what's, uh, how's yeah. the empire working for them? Real, real well. Yeah. And, uh, and number two, uh, some luck, just some weird things that happen to come together in the right order. Um, some plagues happen at the wrong, uh, at the right time. Some, uh, industries happen to pop off at the right time. Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden you've got steam looms and things like that that are uh, are going to become the bedrock of of modern industrialization because they have a lot of sheep yeah makes sense so anyways you should listen to those ones i think they're very good i'm working on it i know i've, I've actually been starting to catch up i believe you i am I I'm, I'm over halfway through now i'm wowed by anyone who has actually catch uh, caught up <laughs> i don't understand how you do it hey just put some podcasts on while you're doing chores yeah helps pass time yeah for sure but anyways yeah those your your, your long answer would be there Okay, so back to like the Ottoman Empire like modernizing though. The next big thing that comes up that's a sort of force for change for them is the Crimean War, mm. which we're not going to spend a ton of time on because it's one of those things that like everybody's heard of it, but it's not actually, I was going to say it's not actually that big a deal. That's maybe not true either. But the things that are important about the Crimean War aren't necessarily that important for the Ottoman Empire. Fair. We can just do a, a quick rundown though. We talked a little bit, a, a little bit about the Crimean Khanate last time? Yes. The Crimean Khanate was a vassal state of the Ottoman Empire. It was technically independent, but it was under the protection of the Ottoman Empire. It is in modern-day Crimea, um, plus north of that into Ukraine. And throughout the 1700s especially, Russia had been expanding quite a bit. And Russia starts, as you well know, or modern Russia at least, is, is quite a bit centered around uh, modern-day Moscow, and it kind of spread out, spreads out from there. Mm -hmm. Moscow isn't exactly on, like, the nicest land. It's not great in terms of, like, farmland compared to, oh, I don't know, Ukraine, <laughs> which is extremely rich farmland. Yeah. And there's a series of czars that look at Ukraine and go, wow, I want that, like, a lot. <laughs> I want to go to there and to have there. And they continually come into military contact with the Crimean Khanate. And it becomes a real issue for the Ottoman Empire having to continually defend this territory. Right. They need it. It's uh, strategically important. And also these are fellow Turks. So they feel like they, they have a, a sort, of, sort of moral obligation to protect them mm -hmm. from Russia. The thing is, they can't really protect them from Russia. Russia keeps beating them. Russia has become quite powerful in this era. In 1768, there was a uh, 
conclusion to uh, the Russo-Turkish War basically forced the Ottomans to renounce their official protection of the Crimean Khanate. That was one of the the conditions of their their loss, mm. which you know on one hand is a little bit of a relief, honestly, to them that they they just sort of can't protect them anymore. On the other hand, that's a that's a pretty heavy penalty to pay for losing a war. Like also, like you needed that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. You're you're basically. When you sign that piece of paper, you're signing the death warrant of that territory. Yeah. Like, there's no there's no getting around that. Even though that treaty guarantees independence for the Crimean Khanate, like, so it's like, you don't have to protect it, but we, we'll leave it alone. Don't worry. Uh-huh. Um, even though even though that's the terms of the, the treaty, uh, Russia annexes the Crimean Khanate in 1783. Now, the area is still technically independent just now under russian protection the way it was under ottoman don't worry about it sure uh-huh the russians in this era and actually for for another you know over a century very much see themselves as the protectors of orthodox christians because the the patriarch has since moved to uh to moscow yeah. um as well as the protectors of slavs in the balkans there's this concept of the greater Slavs and lesser Slavs, mm. with the greater being the Russians and the lesser being everybody else. So this is all these little, well, some of them not so little, but for example, the the uh, uh, Serbians, the Polish, people that have similar ethnic roots and similar uh, linguistic traditions. Russia has become powerful enough that it kind of sees itself as like a world police for, for Slavs. It's, it's the greater Slavs because it's their big brother. There's yeah. a lot of like big brother, little brother rhetoric going on here. And so there's a lot of conflicts that it'll step into, often conflicts that will be beneficial for Russia alone, but it'll be done under the pretext of like protecting their fellow Slavs. Mm. Um, so maybe some of this is actual like warm feelings. Um, a lot of it is also pretext to be able to quote unquote legitimately enter these spaces with military force. As the Ottoman Empire goes through this series of secessions that we've been talking about, it's really showing a lot of weakness, just mm. kind of globally. While Russia is growing, it's expanding, it's becoming stronger. And this kind of culminates in 1831 with the secession of Egypt. We talked about it last time, where we, again, kind of had to rush through it a little bit. But like, it was really dangerous for the Ottomans when this went down, because the uh, the leader of, of uh, Egypt at that point in time, Muhammad Ali, actually yeah yeah i know like <laughs> I the boxer like the boxer um was actually able to raise a powerful enough army that he took it to like the gates of constantinople Dang. like there was there was a there was a short siege there there was real danger of the ottomans falling and it was dangerous enough that they were forced to basically go begging to russia for military support against egypt huh. and russia provided them 10,000 troops and managed to save the battle for them it looks real good on the ottoman empire well the exchange there is a treaty like a very very bad treaty for them i can only imagine there's a lot of stay out of this place and there's a lot of uh defensive treaties against like secret defensive treaties that if so-and-so comes attacking us here you have to help us and yeah it just looks real bad for the ottomans and it gets the rest of europe really worried because they're like the Ottomans aren't the only ones that are stressed out about Russia at this point. Yeah, All of that expansion is a little bit afraid of Russia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this thing about Russia that's going to haunt Russia for forever, always, for, for always. <laughs> it's still kind of a little bit of an issue, but you know, since the since the advent of flight, it's gotten a little better. Russia didn't have access to a warm water port. Mm-hmm. 
They had cold water ports, which means that the ports themselves would freeze over in the winter, which is not a great place to run a navy out of. And this is going to be impetus for conflict all over the all over the world. Like you, this is this is some of the issues that are going to come up in like the Russo-Japanese War in yeah. the early 20th century. They're trying to get to the Pacific that way, but they have to sail uh, ships out of these cold water northern ports. They can sail ships on the Black Sea, which is not a problem, but the Ottomans control access from the Black Sea to the Mediterranean mm-hmm. through the Dardanelles. If the Ottomans fall, then the Russians gain naval access to the Mediterranean and by extension, the Atlantic. Yeah. Ports on the Black Sea, warm water. Mm-hmm. In a century dominated by naval power, um, the British especially are very concerned about this. They do not want the Russians having uh, warm water access. And so they're really concerned about the fact that they're that the the Ottomans are going to the Russians for military support. They're not stupid. Yeah. They, they know they something's know going, going on. on <laughs> so in 1839, Egypt attacks again, uh, attacks the Ottomans again. And this time, the Ottomans are saved by a coalition of British, Austrian, and Russian troops, as well as the Prussians, actually. And all of Europe's like, nah. (laughs) But they're all terrified of losing the Ottomans because they occupy such a key position. Yeah. They don't want to fight Russia directly. The devil you know. Yeah, they don't want to fight Russia directly, but they also are worried that the Ottomans can't hold them in place. So they're trying to prop them up long enough for them to get strong enough to do so. And they're kind of like, come on, guys, like you're embarrassing yourselves (laughs) here. Like you gotta, you gotta get, you gotta get this figured out. Now, keep in mind that, you know, a, a good portion of the reason that the Ottoman Empire is behind as its own internal policies and its own, you know, complicated nature and all of this. Another good chunk of it is that they've been in really compromising relationships with a lot of these powers for a really long time because they're considered second rate. Mm. They're the power that you go to when you don't have anyone else to ally with. And all of these powers are wondering, like, why are they so weak? Well, it's like, well, you haven't given them any military technology and you haven't traded with them the same way that you have with, you know, each other. And Prussia and Austria are looking at the the Ottoman Empire going like, well, why aren't they as close close with us as we are with each other? And it's like, you all are Russia or you all are German. You have this relationship. Like, why, why do you think? Yeah. It's not hard to figure out. You're, you're treating them like a like an adopted sibling or something. <laughs> I, I, I don't mean to. You know, but but that's almost what it is like they're family, but only when it works out. And sometimes yeah, you get that weather really friends. mean jab in there about not being. Yeah, it's 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 a rough spot to be in. Over the 1840s, the uh, the Russians continue to escalate aggression against the Ottomans, finding like every single little tiny reason to go at them. And this all finally um, culminates in like a little nitpicky thing about Russia feeling like uh, the Ottomans weren't providing access to the Holy Land for Orthodox Christians uh, the way that they should be, which mm. is kind of... It's like on one hand, like, yeah, that was technically true. On the other hand, that wasn't really like, is that really a reason to go to war? Like full on go to war? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's it's I think a little bit of both going on there. They move troops into allied regions. They expand their navy on the Black Sea. And in 1853, they actually declare war on the Ottoman Empire. France and Britain. I was going to say, how does Europe react? France and Britain are unwilling to let the Ottoman Empire fall again. It's this warm water issue, right? And so they come to the aid of the Ottoman Empire and Russia is defeated by 1856. It goes on for a, a full three years. And it's very much like the first, a lot of people will point to this one as like the first modern war in a lot of ways, just in terms of tactics used. You've got 
for example, the widespread use of rifled yeah, uh, technology is rifled barrels starting like to that. get nuts here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's very much like Civil War level mm-hmm. technology. We're very close to the Civil War, actually, uh, in terms of timing. So that's kind of what you can you can think of. This is also the first like really wide scale war between major powers since the Napoleonic Wars. There's been lots of little things here and there, but like this is a a full multi year pitched battle between major powers. It's really a proving ground to see what's kind of happened in the last 30 years or so of military technology. Uh, And it's a brutal war. Like, it's really, really rough. The Ottomans don't do a whole lot in it. After that initial declaration and France and Britain kind of roll in, they kind of take over. It's very much between France and Britain. Interesting. And and, and Russia. That's why I'm not really interested in in spending a lot of time on it here. But what it shows is that they're basically patting the Ottoman Empire on the head and going, you know what, we'll take it from here. We got this. Yeah. You stay put. Which is not necessarily a kindness. No. It's not that the Ottomans didn't fight. It's that they were so outmatched by Russia that they just couldn't keep up with the level of heat that uh, the French and British were bringing to the table. Mm -hmm. Is this a, a matter of training or of units? Like, What is it that the Ottoman Empire is lacking here? It's a lot of it is Navy, mm. honestly. And uh, there's also the issue of being able to just simply get troops properly deployed. I mean, the level of troop uh, deployment that the British can bring to the table, because like, the, the British Navy is. Yeah, they've got they've been running the empire. They've <sighs> got to be able to move people around. They basically sail those ships into the Black Sea, take over the, the yeah. entire region and, and, and sort of go like, well, like, yeah, you guys can help out. But like, why? Yeah. The the Ottomans in the meantime, like they're still very early in their reorganization phase. Mm. They don't have a lot of, you know, career generals that are running things here. It's a pretty new system for them. And so there's a lot of stuff that they're still kind of figuring out. Sure. There's other issues. Their their, you know, their industry, like their production isn't quite as uh, as strong as uh, as Britain, things like that. And yeah, it, it's it's again like not not so much an issue of the Ottoman Empire being terrible. It's like how do you stack up against Britain? Mm. That and just the number of people that they have are very much spread out over such a wide array of places that they have trouble getting everybody to a place. They're still in the process, remember, of building all of these railroads that we were talking about. Right. That also yeah, that really hurts sense. their deployment. Furthermore, they have to fight Russia on two fronts. They've got the 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 east where Russia kind of comes down to to meet what would now be like northern Iraq, basically. Yeah. And on the on the west front, they're trying to uh, they're trying to fight against the Russians on a front that isn't really friendly uh, Ottoman territory. It's the Balkans where like three quarters of the people want them dead. Yeah. That's a hard battle to fight. They are fighting basically in enemy territory, even though it's technically theirs. Mm-hmm. So they have a lot of stuff stacked up against them. It was actually a really smart move for Russia to go to war when they did. They they picked a good moment. The war ends as I, as I mentioned in in Ottoman victory, I suppose. <laughs> um, but what ends up happening is, as part of the the terms, Russia does end up getting full control of Crimea, and over three hundred thousand ethnically Turkish, uh, the, the Russians would call them, uh, Tatars, uh, were expelled from the region and moved into the Ottoman Empire, um, further kind of complicating the ethnic situation there. Yeah. Some people took this all as a sign that Tanzimat hadn't gone far enough, that they still needed to make 
bigger and bolder reforms. And there's a group, uh, actually a secret society initially, uh, known Ooh, as the young, <laughs> known as the young Ottomans. Okay. This is named after the, uh, the young Italy movement of, uh, Italian nationalists in the 1830s. And it starts off with like six guys that like meet, you know, I think it was for a picnic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> very clandestine. Super sinister. Uh, basically their whole thing was like, man, like it's not, it's not enough to just get some post offices put in place. Like we need like an actual constitutional democracy. When was the last time you had a picnic? Now I'm distracted. <laughs> it's been a long time. I couldn't even tell you. You should do a picnic. I'm down. All right. <laughs> <laughs> They're established in 1865 and uh, their goal was, yeah, a constitutional government, a constitutional democracy. Everybody else went through this in 1848 trying to determine whether or not they were going to have a constitution or not. The Ottomans sort of went, well, we'll try out some post offices. <laughs> Maybe put some trains around. Which, I don't know. Which were some big moves for them at the time, Yeah, to be fair. Um, but it's not the same thing. And the these ideas are considered dangerous. These individuals are considered dangerous. Some of them are are exiled, but their ideas are pervasive and they kind of creep into a lot of different levels of of uh turkish leadership mm -hmm. then what you get is a series of disasters in in uh, the ottoman empire uh first of all in 1873 there's a global stock market crash people talk about the great depression this is not anything close to what happened in the 1870s like the level of economic disaster was unparalleled it's wild. Why does the Great Depression get the focus? Is it because it was a prelude to World War Two, or yeah. the consequence of World War One, or it's it's a little bit of both? Both of those. I mean, I think I think the uh, pretext of the Great Depression, made, you know, the the wealth of the 1920s makes the fall seem even harder. Fair. Um, there were. We'll be, I'll be honest. Nobody really focuses too much on history before World War One. Well, there's school, that too. So, well, yeah, there's there's lots of stuff that we think of as being like the first version of something that yeah. you know is is absolutely not. For example, the uh, we we are off topic. Welcome to HI one hundred and one. Hey, uh, the the Red Scare, right? Joseph McCarthy, the yeah. the communist witch hunts. Not the first Red Scare in the United States. There was an earlier one, uh, not too long after the Russian Revolution. You covered this in your communism episode, didn't you? Very, very briefly. Yeah, I, this rings a bell. Yeah, but like no one talks about it. Yeah. Why? I don't know. Like we get a, a lot of times when similar things have happened, we get kind of caught up on the most recent one. Mm. Um, but why the 1878 one doesn't get covered? I think a lot of it is that it's more complicated. Fair. Um, I mean, how much do you remember about the 1930s? Like the causes of the depression from school? Nothing. So I literally, I was like, ah, something, something, World War One, something, a big, something. A big reason for the crash was people were borrowing money to buy stocks. Yeah. There's a reason that, like, now, today, if you ever buy any sort of stocks, like, you have to, like, explicitly acknowledge that you did not buy, uh, borrow money right. to buy these stocks. It's because of the, the crash in 1929. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we ignore things in favor of are things that we... Uh, that that have simple explanations right fair and the 1878 one or sorry the 1873 one uh it's not quite so simple there was a bunch of different factors that came together and caused a, a massive uh a star, stock market crash but it's not as simple as a bunch of people got all hopped up on jazz and borrowed too much money to buy <laughs> stocks ah uh, yes jazz <laughs> that uh, was definitely the problem <laughs> in the great depression <laughs> jazz music well they couldn't drink what else were they gonna do <laughs> right um snort some jazz uh the other problem specifically for the ottoman empire is that there's a series of droughts 1873 to 1874 
uh, in Anatolia, which significantly cripples agricultural output. So yeah. famine plus economic recession, not a good look. Those of you that watch or listen to the Ireland episode, you know how bad famines can get. You should really never discount droughts no. and agricultural output. Mm-mm. No, it's a big deal. And then finally, there's a uh, there's a, a couple of different revolts in Bosnia and uh, Bulgaria, mm. and it's for the usual reasons. We don't have to cover them again. Yep. You've got the you've got the idea now. Viva la revolution. In response to all of these crises, basically, there's a small coup in the uh, in the Turkish government or the Ottoman government, I should say. I, we're getting closer and closer to modern Turkey, and I keep wanting to call them Turkish rather than Ottoman, but they're still very much Ottoman. Um, in 1876, uh, Sultan Abdulaziz was deposed by a number of prominent Ottoman uh, politicians, and some of those politicians were members of the Young Turks. Mm. And they installed his son, Crown Prince Murad, who was actually friendly to the cause. Didn't you say they had a different name, Young something else? No, no, no. They were based on the Young, uh, the Young Italy movement. Okay. Sorry, what did I say? The Young. Oh, I see. I said Young Turks. Yeah. That... Again, getting very confused. It's the Young Ottomans at this point. There right. are going to. There's going to be another movement called the Young Turks later. I know. I've heard of the Young Turks, and I was specifically waiting to see if that would come up. Yes, it will. Just not right now. I apologize for the confusion. No, we are talking about the Young Ottomans. So Crown Crown Prince Murad is put into place uh, by these Young Ottoman sympathizers and occasionally members, and basically he's put in uh, on condition of promising to install a constitutional monarchy basically and uh as well as like a representative parliament Mm -hmm. and the constitution is written by members of this movement and it's implemented in 1876 murad is an interesting guy he was very friendly like he he was very sympathetic to this cause and you'll see a lot of very young rulers in this period of time actually quite friendly to the idea of constitutions and other classically liberal uh, political ideals. Um, <laughs> what a novel concept! Young people being liberal. Well, but but I mean, it, it has a very different concept when we're talking but about the, the 19th century, right? It's still kind of funny. But but it's also interesting one because you're you're talking about people being handed authorita- authoritarian power, and, and still going like, you know what? I think it's okay to give my people more rights and, and me less power. Yeah. Um, the fact that as many of them were amenable to the idea as actually were is is actually kind of amazing. Um, these are people who, in a lot of cases, are raised to believe that they have a divine right to absolute power, and that's a, it's a hack of a drug. Um, yeah, no kidding. Murad V is in power for three months. Oh, good. I'm, I'm not terribly happy with the way he's covered in a lot of contexts, but as best I can tell, um, what happened was his, his father, the, the previous sultan, Abdulaziz, actually committed suicide after he had been removed, and it seems that he most likely suffered some sort of nervous breakdown as a result of that. Mm. Now, I, I've seen other sources just say things along the lines of like, oh, he was just mentally ill, uh, you know, unfit to rule. Guy was mourning, like, yeah. give him a bit of a break. But in any case, he found himself un- unable to actually uh, rule over a massive political change in a, in a massive empire that's very, very complicated to run and already kind of uncertain in terms of the number of amendments that have been made to its power structure. Like that's a, that's a big undertaking and yeah, guy has some stuff to work out. He ends up abdicating in favor of his, uh, his brother actually, uh, Hamid the, uh, Hamid II. And when he said that he was going to be abdicating, the young Ottomans basically went, so Hamid, you're, you're, you're also good with this whole 
constitutional parliament thing and he's like oh yeah definitely no problem or his fingers crossed behind his back <laughs> the um <laughs> the parliament met met once mm -hmm. and then amid the second used his uh his very legal parliamentary powers to prorogue par parliament and then yep. just never called it again of course russia declares war again in 1877 as they do um i think they're defending bulgarian christians this time who knows um <laughs> it's it's always something like that yeah and he goes you know what this is not working dispels the parliament completely and uh reinstitutes authoritarian control uh, of the sultan in the ottoman empire and now we're back to where we were after only two years of constitutional experiment good job you so, did it why don't we take a break here and when we come back we'll talk about where do we go from here what now <laughs> now what now what we, i mean the constitution has been the the path to success for so many other nations that you know uh not not having that in place um is is a really risky thing for a, a, an empire that's already in trouble so yeah let's uh let's take a quick break and we come back now what <laughs> Back on HI101 here with Phil Downey. Yo. And before the break, we we almost took a really progressive step for oh, the well, Ottoman well, Empire. We we took it. We kind of stumbled, maybe, real hard. We we tentatively put one foot on the ice and went, mm, seems too thin, and came right back. <laughs> yeah. Didn't go so well. Uh, no, no constitutional democracy for the Ottoman Empire, at least right now. It was a real blow for the young Ottoman movement. They essentially disbanded at this point because, well... They clearly didn't have a friend in Hamid the Second. Yeah. What actually prevented them from attempting another coup? Um, that's a great question, actually. I, I believe he was familiar enough with who the leadership was that they would have had a really difficult time actually organize, organizing yeah. a proper coup. A coup. That, that, that kind of makes sense since they were actively in talks with him about making mm -hmm. sure he followed through with this constitutional... Essentially, movement. yeah. I mean, they were no longer secret at this point. They they had literally and openly helped write this constitution that was being put in place and then removed. Um, I also just realized, I, I think I, was, I got his name wrong. It's Abdul Hamid II, not Hamid. But in any case, yeah, I, I think it was simply he knew far too much about them. They were too open. And that wasn't going to go well for anybody. Yeah, fair enough. That war in Russia that I mentioned right before the break comes to a an end with a very decisive Russian victory. Surprise, surprise. Who knew? And uh, Britain and France didn't come to help this time? It was very localized in the Balkans. Mm. And they aren't as concerned about Balkan control. Yeah. The Balkans were very much ignored by the rest of Europe. I mean, it, it was such a it was such a difficult area to try and navigate for most Europeans because it's a really complicated place. You have a lot of different types of people there with very, very strong and very distinct identities, all trying to assert those identities. And have we ever done an episode on the Balkans? Not really. I'm going to write that down for later. <laughs> That's going to be a complicated one, though. I mean, you know. Sounds like a good one for me, then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, we'd be running into essentially the exact same problem as the great powers of the 19th century, which is what do you even do with the Balkans? Yeah. Like, how do you get your head around the Balkans? The problem here is that while we're talking about this assertion of national identity and and political independence, you get into an issue of like, okay, we can point to France and go that France is full of French people, more or less. This is France. Yeah. And 
you can look at Germany and go like, okay, well, there's a lot of different little German principalities, but we all share a, a common German identity. And I mean, obviously, every time we do this, we're excluding a lot of people, but there is sort of a uh, an overarching majority that can come to some sort of uh, consensus. Not the case in the Balkans. Well, you get to a spot where like the number of countries and the size of each country that you would need in order to give each distinct ethnicity their own state becomes... I don't want to say outrageous because what they're asking for there is not an outrageous thing. Yeah, but perhaps bureaucratically infeasible. Yes, especially when you are, say, Britain, who doesn't really care about the fact that some of these countries are going to be like a couple hundred square miles, maybe. Yeah. They just want the problems to go away. Can y'all figure this out? The real problem... Good old Britain. The real problem with scare quotes, scare quotes here with the Balkans is that no one was willing to assimilate into a larger group, mm. basically. I mean, if you ask each of these groups who the dominant group should be in a larger, you know, pan-Balkan state, they would say me. Well, yeah. it should be mine. And there's certain groups that are stronger than others, obviously. the You know, Serbia used to be huge, and there's a lot of people who would say, well, there's a historical precedent set for this area all being Serbia. And there is a pan-Serbian movement in the Balkans to this day. But you ask somebody from Bulgaria about that and they're going to have things to say about it, yeah. right? Like, the, the problems there stem, and I'm, I'm jumping far ahead, but like the, the lack of understanding of the problems of that region are going to have consequences like well into the 90s and even to the present, right? The fact that they basically just invented Yugoslavia out of, out of whole cloth, mm -hmm. huge problem, caused massive issues. The fact that they made a country called Czechoslovakia because they went... Well, there's the Czechs and the Slovaks, and they yeah. want two countries, but let's just make it one. That really went well. Yeah, it, it definitely lasted. But that's that's the level of understanding that some of these uh, greater powers have of this region, where all of these people hate each other, and they're going, uh, one country should be fine for these ones, right? Right? Yeah. So administering all of this on the level of the Ottoman Empire, when... You're not only dealing with all of these little groups in the Balkans, but you're also dealing with uh, ethnically Turkish people and you're dealing with Persian people and you're dealing with Arabic people and uh, North African people. And, and, and like, there's so many different groups that they just kind of disappear into background noise a little bit, not because none of this stuff is important, but because we're in a real squeaky wheel situation here yeah. and the squeaky wheel tends to be wherever Russia is attacking right now mm -hmm. or wherever is trying to actively split off right now. Yeah, that's fair. After this war with uh, Russia, um, Bulgaria, Romania, Serbia, and Montenegro are all made independent states as as uh, terms of the peace agreement. Mm -hmm. And this is great for, I don't know, a couple months until Austria-Hungary goes, well, that leaves Bosnia like really unguarded. And like that's the only one that didn't get independence. I'm going to take that. Now, Bosnia is still technically part of the Ottoman Empire at this point. Okay, I was going to say. Mm -hmm. And the Ottomans went, well, what are you doing? No. And it results in this weird situation where they can't actually expel Austria-Hungary from Bosnia, but they also aren't ever defeated by Austria-Hungary to oh, the point yes. where... Perma war. Great. To, yeah, well, both, both sides had uh, troops stationed in Bosnia for better part of 30 years fighting to stalemate. Oh. And Bosnia is loving this. I was going to say, that sounds like a great place to be right now. Everyone wonders why Bosnia is so angry at the beginning of World War I. Mm -hmm. These two couldn't figure their out and take over my country. <laughs> um, 
and like Austria Hungary getting involved in this region is like, what do you, yeah, what's what the motivation you, there? What are you guys doing here? It's it's I mean it's a it's More, a strategically yeah. important location, and at this point the Ottoman Empire uh, we used the phrase last time. I'm just so sick of seeing it. I, I don't really use it, but like the sick man of Europe idea, right? Mm. Like, well, they're just falling apart anyways. It's only a matter of time. Might as well try and grab what we can now. The idea being like, well, Bosnia isn't like protected by Russia because that's part of the impetus for these. Uh, these other four states becoming independent, right? They're Slavic. Mm. And it's like, well, Bosnia hasn't, it like doesn't have the explicit protection of Russia, at least at this point in time. They also haven't been explicitly made independent by Russia at this point in time. Let's grab it before it becomes independent just through the Ottoman Empire's own incompetence, yeah. I suppose. What's to prevent Russia from coming in after the fact? Or is Russia more afraid of Austria-Hungary? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they really are. But but in reality, nothing. Yeah. If they wanted it, they'd go for it too. Yeah. And I mean, this is the sort of situation where early Germany, which is now actually a, a, a country, it's a it's a nation that we can talk about rather than a sort of loose affiliation of states. Go Bismarck. Um, right. Oh, Bismarck. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Bismarck is horrified by all of this because remember that one of Bismarck, Bismarck's tenets for peace in Europe is like never... Uh, antagonize both france and russia yeah <laughs> and great move <laughs> they were not that long out of a franco-prussian war yeah um and now we're antagonizing well not germany but one of germany's closest allies austria-hungary is antagonizing russia by getting involved in the balkans and he's going like what are you guys doing this is insanity you're going to ruin everything mm -hmm. and he manages to kind of stave off the situation in russia with some very clever uh diplomatic work but like he's not going to be around forever and that's the real yeah. problem with the pre-world war one era right is a lot of it was kind of held together by one guy which does not make for a good system we've talked about this how many times yeah if your system can't out survive or can't survive you it's not a good system you were just good mm -hmm. that's not a good system systems need to last is do you think that's where that whole uh theory the the great man theory of history comes from is just systems that really couldn't like survive past a one good leader partially yes i mean that's that's one part of the good of, of the great man theory the other portion of the great man theory is that literally nothing would happen without these outstanding mm. singular people i think that if we're talking about the great man theory in terms of like are there exceptional human beings that make things happen on their own like yeah absolutely the place that it falls apart for me personally is this idea that they're completely irreplaceable or that events would not have happened without this yeah, one individual taking uh, taking part in them. Um, I, I kind of end up sort of somewhere in the middle on a lot of that stuff. Yeah. You know, you, you look at the work of some of these people and go like, how did you, how did you accomplish this? How did one person accomplish this? That's amazing. And like, yes, there are exceptional people, obviously, but the idea that, you know, for example, the Napoleonic Wars hinges on Napoleon being a great general. It's like, man, there's so many good generals under Napoleon that could have stepped into his role yeah. if they had needed to. France was already at war with everybody. Yeah, like, you're, you're ignoring all the other contributing factors exactly. by just attributing it to, in this case, say, Napoleon. That there being, are other people who may have been able to fill a similar role. Yeah, definitely. That being said, I think what you're saying is, is a, a really interesting thing in that, like, Hey, when you get so say uh, an Alexander who like yes is absolutely standing on the shoulders of his father, but like manages to extend the Macedonian power reach across half of Asia, and then as soon as he dies, the entire thing falls apart. 
is is that part of what plays into this myth of of a singular great person? Yeah, absolutely. Because what he failed to do was solidify that power structure. Yeah, and maybe given some time, he could have. I don't know. Gets very speculative, but it, it certainly doesn't help the mystique of a single great person. I think the I think where it falls apart though is saying that like that's a good thing when well, when that's the thing an amazing here. person exists. You, you've actually touched on how this idea I had that actually sort of pries apart the theory in that. If they were so great, it wouldn't have fallen apart after them because they would have prepared for it because they should know. Yeah. Well, and, and then you get into issues of like, well, what is greatness, which is far <laughs> outside of the the scope of this podcast. But yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that I think that when you get to a spot where um, your own uh, exceptionalism is the only thing holding a system together, it's like, well, yeah, it's not really success. Yeah, that, that is that is personal success. But is that is that uh, a success greater than yourself? Nah, not really. And for most of these great people, they're looking for success for their nation, mm-hmm. not necessarily just themselves. Like one would hope. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair point. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, where where were we? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, there's there's further pieces of the Ottoman Empire falling off all over the place. Um, under the guise of helping to stabilize the region, Britain assumes administrative control of Cyprus in 1878, and then Egypt in 1882, which has been a vassal state, but kind of a ha- hostile one ever since these uh, revolts in the 1830s. Mm-hmm. The Ottoman Empire just lost all of Egypt, so that's great. Whoops. France just takes Tunisia in 1881. We'll help you look after it. No problem. Forgive my ignorance here, but Tunisia is an African country? Yeah, north coast of Africa. So they're just failing miserably in Africa right now. Yes. It's a long did way s- to administer. Do they still have uh, Iraq and Iran? Uh, yes, but, you know, pieces Tenuously. have been kind of chipping yeah. off for a long time. In 1908, we're going to get another revolution. This time it is the Young Turks, not the Young Ottomans. The Young Turks have been around since 1902 or so. And basically they were founded out of a similar mindset that the young ottomans had been founded namely we need to adapt and adjust or are we going to be left behind and the evidence of that is abundant like there is we we have no problems proving that we are in huge trouble here their their group is founded in 1902 but the uh, the revolution takes about six years to get in place in 1908 there's a full armed uprising in the ottoman empire uh, to attempt to overthrow the sultan, who's still Abdul Hamid II. He's gotten old. He's clearly out of touch. The last time they tried the whole constitutional thing, he noped out of it he after it in about two minutes. literally <laughs> one session. And they went, well, you're not the right leader for us. Like, we've been waiting for... Uh, we've been waiting for you to die for some time now, and it's <laughs> taking gonna, too long. We're going to take that into our own hands. Um, we, we, we'd like to help you with that. Um, <laughs> they're, That's they're, really grim. <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't kill him. <laughs> they don't kill him. They're they're just going to overthrow him and force him to abdicate. Um, there's fears over the fracturing empire. There's fears over stronger uh, advancing opponents. All of this stuff is playing into it. The fact that they're losing the Balkans left, right, and center is not good. Uh, they know about Austria-Hungary in, in Bosnia. They, that's that's a huge issue for them. And they're going like, we gotta we gotta figure this out. Like we are an ancient system in a modern world and we have to fix this or we're going to perish they specifically use fears over an alliance between britain and france uh, britain and russia to help further their cause and 
there, there is actually a, an alliance at this point in time between Britain and Russia. They, they're using news of that to basically stoke everybody up. It's like, listen, Britain has rescued us so many times from Russia. Now they're on the same side. What are we going to do here? Mm-hmm. Basically, uh, once they overthrow the, and, and it's not, it's not like a, a massive civil war French revolution style. This is more of a coup. Uh, once they, they overthrow the, uh, the Sultan, they convince him to reinstate the 1876 constitution and parliament system, which, uh, Abdul Hamid does just before, uh, you know, uh, abdicating the throne. Austria, Hungary, meanwhile, uses this opportunity for internal, uh, struggle, uh, to decisively take over Bosnia and finally drive the Ottomans out of it completely. This is, uh, if you're keeping count, only six years before yeah, I was just First World say, War. We're coming up on a big date soon. <laughs> Bulgaria, Montenegro, Greece, and Serbia all band together in what's known as the Balkan League. Do they all border each other? Yes, for the most part. Is Greece separate from them? Um, that's, the for the most part, the hedging that I was doing. Yeah. I'm trying to remember <laughs> if they would at this point. Uh, I, Greece might not border the others. Okay. I could be wrong on that. Borders in the Balkan at this point in time are, are very fluid. I, I don't know off the top of my head. Sure. No, they're not they're not creating a uh, like a singular political entity. They're they're creating an alliance known as the Balkan League. And they are getting support behind the scenes from guess who? Russia? You bet. <laughs> Nailed it. Russia has Adam, you said there wasn't gonna be a test on this. <laughs> but no, I've been paying attention. Russia Russia has been looking for opportunities to undermine the Ottoman Empire for I don't know, two hundred years now. Um and and this seems like a really good one. And they're doing it again in this spirit of like, well, everybody's about uh not not national determination. Yeah, We're just sure. supporting our Slavic brothers in the Balkans from and the Greece. tyranny of <laughs> they can come too. We're not discriminating. <laughs> <laughs> it's the slavs and greece don't worry about it the balkan league attacks the ottoman empire in 1912 they oh, wow. they declare war on the ottoman empire <laughs> they believed uh basically three things number one the ottoman empire had failed to competently govern them and had failed to competently reform itself to make itself able to govern them fair mm-hmm. uh they believed that they were uh, or they also believed that other great powers did not have Balkan interests at heart and were unlikely to support them. Mm. Also fair. Accurate. Uh, and finally, uh, believe that they were strong enough, united to take on the Ottomans who seem to be militarily somewhat fragile at this point in time. Your tone suggests that maybe this plan didn't work out so well for the Alliance. Oh no, they were right. Oh, okay. They win this conflict. <laughs> now keep in mind, they are getting covert Russian backing yes. in all of this, which certainly helps things. But the war doesn't go terribly well off the bat. This is the kind of thing that once upon a time, the Ottomans would have just crushed outright and it would be at the end of it. Mm-hmm. But this region had seen so much turmoil in the last century or so that all of these nations had very small, but like extremely strongly developed militaries. Mm-hmm. They were used to fighting in these areas, put that together with Russian backing and like, you're set to go. So what's their goal with the attack? Like, I understand why they're doing it, but what are they trying to accomplish? They're trying to accomplish, or they're trying to liberate all of the Balkans from the Ottoman Empire. So what's left? What comes out? Oh, in terms of states? Yeah. <sighs> That's a great question. At, at this point, we're better off talking about like geographic regions sure. than we are about, you know, modern day this and that. Uh, a lot of these states, even though they have modern names, aren't the states that we're talking about anyways that's fair so 
they're trying to basically drive the Ottomans back essentially out of Europe if they can. Mm -hmm. And while they don't accomplish that, they do manage to accomplish uh, driving the Ottoman Empire back to essentially what would be the border of modern Turkey today, okay. which doesn't leave them in Europe very much at all. Yeah. There's, there's very little of it there. But it's a, it's a fairly sizable territorial loss for the Ottoman Empire. And in a lot of ways, it puts them in a position where they're no longer really a European uh, power. Because up until now, you know, we often talk about the the Ottoman Empire as being like a European power. And you look at a map of Turkey and go like, yeah, kind of. Yeah. But they held a lot of territory that is in what today we would call Europe. Mm -hmm. it, it made sense to think of them that way. The real problem with the war in the Balkans... It wasn't just how prepared the Balkan League was to go to war. It was also the fact that it's really hard to get troops from the rest of the Ottoman Empire into that region. You basically have to perform naval landings. Yeah. And that's not something that they were terribly strong at. And it's something that is relatively easy to defend against when you're defending a relatively short amount of coastline, yeah. which they were. So it, it didn't go terribly well for them. And the situation in the Ottoman Empire was already so fragile politically that once it started going poorly, then there was a military coup in 1913, basically going like, none of our leaders are capable of putting down a tiny insurrection in the Balkans. We need change now. And, you know, you see the Grand Vizier uh, overthrown. You see the uh, head of the Navy overthrown. You see a bunch of people in top posts uh, taken out. And this is not a helpful thing to happen during a, a, a series of wars in the Balkans. No, so, not so much. Again, these are 1912 to 1913. We are now one year before World War I. Mm -hmm. In August of 1914, the new Young Turk government signs, the one that comes out of this, this military coup, uh, signs a secret alliance with uh, Germany, specifically against Russia. Here we go. Here comes the domino. It's one of the latest uh, uh, alliances to go in place before the start of, of World War I. The reasoning here is that things are obviously uh, problematic in the Balkans. They know more conflict is coming. There was actually two wars in that tiny series. It's another one of you know against Romania that you know, we don't need to get completely into. But they're basically, throughout all of this, the, the Russians are going, you know, we're going to support Slavs. Like, we're going to go to war with these people or to support these people if we need to is romania also a slavic nation eh, some are okay <laughs> again keep in mind that this is as much a, uh, an excuse for russia yes. in this period yeah. as it is an actual they're they're not taking blood quantum and deciding who's <laughs> who's slavic enough to right. uh, protect and who's not they are interested in this area because again they want a warm water port yeah this all needs to be framed in the context they of got that. it yet by no, the way no no Still they haven't, haven't. what's they, what's what is it that they need to take to get it? They need access from the Black Sea to the Mediterranean. Okay. Now that's difficult to do because yeah. you need to go uh, through the Dardanelles, which is held by the Ottoman Empire, yeah. into the Mediterranean, through the entire Mediterranean, which is held by various uh, powers, but yeah. then out through the Straits of Gibraltar, which are held by the British. Yeah. Who still probably, even though they have an alliance, don't want them no. to, to get that warm water port. Correct. Yeah, this all needs to be framed in that context of the naval race before World War One, yeah. which basically saw a British policy of they needed their navy to be bigger than the second place and third place navies combined in order to feel like their national uh, interests were secure. Mm -hmm. And the Germans were just building ships like crazy, which was driving up the number of necessary British ships under that, sh that system. Fair. That tension is the background for Russia trying to get 
a warm water port that is terrifying the British because right now they're only contending with the Germans and they feel th as, as though they should be able to keep the German Navy contained on the, the coast of Germany. This this is gonna this is totally off topic, but mm -hmm. just for the, for context, yep. what is the core of the conflict between the German and uh, British navies right now? Is it literally just my empire should be bigger than yours, or is there? There's the Germans are trying to build a navy that can go toe to toe with the British navy. Why though? Because they want to be bigger. There's a. <laughs> is it just expansionist? Is there? It's expansionist. It's it's the the Germans have this policy of. Hmm. Let me restart. The Germans were late to the game because they were a new nation. They, right. they were yes, only a nation for, for 40 years at this point. Yeah. And they're looking at all these other European powers going, well, they have colonies in Africa. They have colonies around the world. They're extracting resources from them. They're getting rich from them. We have none of those. Why don't we have those? Let's get colonies. Yeah. What you need to be a big European power is a good navy because the British are the biggest power and they have a big old navy. Mm -hmm. We got to do that. Their allies in France have a big navy. We got to worry about that. Also, France is our enemy right now. We've got to be able to contend with France if anything goes down. We are 40 years out of a straight war with France, and we know that they're looking for an opportunity to come for us. We've got to protect ourselves. And the conflict with France is just proximity, shared the conflict shared with, area? Yeah, there's all of that. There's historical enmity. Yeah. There's the fact that there used to be... We're, we're getting so off topic here, but that's, that's okay. interesting. No, no, it's good. The, there used to be a system of essentially five powers in in europe mm -hmm. britain france uh russia prussia and austria that was well balanced then prussia basically convinced all of the other yeah it ate germany yeah it ate germany it sure. became germany and the power of prussia versus the power of germany is completely unmatched germany was so much stronger but they're also at a very vulnerable position yeah. so they're prickly but they're vulnerable at the same time which makes them very aggressive yeah. they're worried well, that your nationhood's at stake well, at stake. the last 200 years of, of, of international policy has been keep those five spheres of influence in balance. Mm. We need those spheres of influence to stay balanced because if any one of them gets too powerful, then the other ones can't keep them in check. So if anyone starts getting too powerful, i.e. France under Napoleon, mm -hmm. we've got to take the rest of them and get that power back into balance with the rest. Otherwise, we risk another Napoleon or we risk another potential okay. pan-European conquest. So, to cycle back to the ottomans mm -hmm. we've got the russians who are trying to get through the ottoman empire to throw to grow their sphere of influence because that's the best shot because that they have the best in warm shot. water yeah. yeah they and they need that because that'll get them the resources and the whatever to yeah. keep their nation from getting tiny or irrelevant yeah and and, and there's a there's another whole oh, issue of so complicated <laughs> there's this other whole issue of naval power at this point in time which is that there's there's different ideas of what you need to actually be powerful with a navy and one of them is that like you need to get your boats out mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how many boats you have they you just need to get them out there now there's there's opposition to this saying like even just having boats even if they can't come out is powerful in and of itself because this is actually how World War One naval battles go down. There's like one big battle and that's it. That's um, just posturing otherwise? Well, here's the thing. The German ships can't sail out because the British Navy is there. Mm. But the thing is, the British Navy can't leave yeah, and go somewhere else. They've been, they're pinning down the German ports. It, it's something called a fleet in being. Okay. And it's this idea that just having the ships is enough. Uh, it might not win you naval battles, but it's enough to tie up your, your enemy's navy. So you also need to be able to deploy those ships, but not necessarily have to actually do it. Yes. You need the ability to do it, but you don't actually have to do it. Yes. Now you have Russia, whose only 
uh, because they they tried fighting, uh, and I talked about this in the Meiji Restoration episode. Really good one, by the way. Go and listen to it. The the Russians tried to get a port on uh, the Pacific, yeah, that's a warm water port, Vladivostok. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and they failed. Uh, that was their that was their big play yeah. uh, on the on the east. And if you can't get out east, uh, you have to go west. And the only way out west for them is either through Scandinavia, mm-hmm. which is very very difficult. And they try it, but it doesn't go well. Um, or you need to go through the Black Sea and through the Mediterranean. And the Ottomans are the one in the way for that. And the Ottomans know it. So they feel that their best chance of survival here is to go to Russia's biggest enemy at this point, Germany. Yep. <laughs> And create this alliance. Remember saying, when I said earlier about the dominoes? This is why. This is why I wanted all that context. Mm-hmm. No, about I know the it's... state of things. Even though I know this is supposed to be the episode on the Ottomans. Yeah, you really got to understand how like complex this political situation. Well, yeah, is Yeah, right why is now. why is everyone so angry at everybody else? Yeah, well, because if you don't get angry at everyone else, your state falls apart, like the Ottomans is doing. Yes, exactly. So that's that's how that's how all of this shakes out. And then Franz Ferdinand is shot in Bosnia, and these alliances all shake out and that's you're done that's yeah. the end game go, it's world war one now go watch uh what we, we talk i talk about him every time i'm on here um i'm blanking on his name history of the japan then history oh, of everything um, i can never bill, remember his name bill Wirtz. bill Wirtz. go yep. watch go, go watch his history of everything video fast forward to the world war ii part because he does a very uh humorous little diagram actually it might be in the japan one watch them both anyways they're he both does, good. he actually does run you through the dominoes yeah and it's nuts like just so many alliances and treaties yep. cause world war one to happen yep and, and it's really interesting because they're all built on the premise of trying to prevent warfare and then they just completely backfire <laughs> the biggest one <laughs> yeah in any case before we get into world war one I'm, I'm not actually gonna spend that much time on world war one as as we are uh want to do on this show yeah it's not that it's a boring topic. It's absolutely not a boring topic. It's been topic. covered elsewhere. It's been covered elsewhere. And either you either you skim past it or you really get into it. There's yeah. no halfway. Yeah. And I'm not really getting into it. There's there's no, others who've done a much better for job it. for that. <laughs> yep. So a couple of things that I will say about the Ottomans in, in World War One. Number one, they were probably the worst positioned on the Triple Alliance side. The Triple Alliance being Germany, Austria-Hungary, and, and the Ottoman Empire uh, in terms of just geographical setup. Everyone points to Germany being in a really bad spot with France on one side and Russia on the other. And, and really that's, that's Germany's reason for uh, preemptively attacking France. And I, I get that. But the thing is, in, in terms of the way that the timing worked out, they, they, did, they did okay. And it wasn't good, but it also wasn't as bad as the Ottomans were. Because as we talked about, they have two full fronts on either side of the Black Sea to guard against yeah. from oncoming Russian troops. Russia at this point has so many people, <laughs> like so many people. Well, they've just eaten Asia, right? Yes. Like they have all of it by now. Pretty much. All the North two thirds. Yep. It's a chunk of land. He's just real big. And yes, there might not be as many people, you know, throughout all of that land, but it's just so much land yeah. that when you take it all up and sum it, it's a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Russia had its own problems obviously we're a couple of years out from the russian revolution there's a bunch of internal stuff that we don't have time to get into but early in the early in the war they went hard against germany but they also went really really hard against the ottoman empire and ottoman empire is going to spend most of the war just kind of trying to hang on to its borders it's not going to really push into russia at all and it's not really going to see much action against other uh, entente forces 
Entente. Uh, triple Entente. Uh, we talk about you, you, Allied forces. Gotcha. The Allied forces of World War II. They were called the Triple Entente in World War One, and cool. the Triple Alliance was the Axis in World War II. Ugh. Yeah. Sorry, man. Accuracy sucks sometimes. Yeah. So yeah, Britain, Britain, France, and uh, and Russia. I feel you. The two things I will talk about in World War One, actually three, I suppose. Number one would be uh, what's known as Gallipoli. Never heard of that one before. Gallipoli was a British attempt at a naval landing in the Ottoman Empire in, in modern day Turkey. It was Churchill's idea. It was a bad one. And they continued to throw British and British allied forces at the landing uh, long after they should have given up and realized that it was a defeat. Hmm. And this is a moment of national consciousness awakening for Australia and New Zealand in terms of just how te- uh, how terribly their forces were treated uh, at these battles. I was um, going to say, did you mean Austria? But then you said New Zealand. <laughs> I got you. They went hard against the Ottomans, and they were treated poorly mm. by the British. It was essentially, like, not that there weren't British troops there, but you know that a battle is going badly when the forces are consisting mainly of Australians, New Zealanders, Irish, and Newfoundlanders. Great. Because they put those ones on the winning battles every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Churchill was the uh, the naval commander at the time, and this is one of the biggest black spots on his career, uh, specifically in the navy. But I know how much of a Churchill fan you are, so yeah, lovely guy, lovely guy. Uh, yeah, it, it was it, it was one of the largest uh, Allied defeats in World War One. It's real hard to pull off a naval landing in 1915. Fair, and it was a bad beach for it. To boot so uh it, it's also you know in the context of us talking about the ottoman empire one of the few major victories that they could credit to themselves uh over the course of world war one the other thing that i wanted to talk about is the arab revolt and this is the thing that doesn't get talked about a lot in the context of world war one although i guarantee you've heard of it in that the british who had had some experience in the area remember they were uh they were administrating uh egypt especially mm-hmm had some idea of what it was like to be Arabic under the Ottoman Empire and the fact that a lot of them didn't much like it. Yeah. Uh, we haven't really talked about unrest in that uh, area much, but it, it came up from time to time. It just t- tended to be a little more localized and a little more between each other than directly against the centralized Ottoman state. Mm-hmm. The British went, I bet it would hurt the Ottomans a lot if they lost Arab support. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they promised uh, a number of different Arab leaders pretty reasonable treaty terms if they would, well, revolt against the Ottomans. And this is where you get uh, Lawrence of Arabia, for example, who was a a British uh, military commander who helped Arabic troops organize with a little more uh, modern tactics against against Ottoman troops. And this is where the Ottoman Empire loses uh, the Arabian Peninsula and specifically control over uh, Mecca and Medina, which had been so important culturally to it for so long, gave control of that back to uh, Arabic-led uh, states, uh, including actually the the House of Saud. This is where the Saudi princes get their their start. Is yeah. well, I mean, they've, they've been around for a couple hundred years at this point, but they get a lot of British support in this revolt for uh, uh, attacking the Ottomans. So not only do the Ottomans have to contend with the Russians on multiple fronts, they also have to contend with what is ostensibly an internal revolt going on at the same time in the Arabian Peninsula, which puts Fun. them 
back on their heels on three different fronts. Sounds good. Which is a big portion of the reason why they were virtually ineffective in, in this war. Yeah. It's also a very early example of British tinkering in this region of the world that would have very long-lasting effects because, surprise, surprise, a lot of the prom- promises that were made were not upheld after the uh, after the conclusion of World War I. Um, they were very much used by the British as freedom fr- fighters of, of convenience. Yeah. That being said, that is that is where um, a lot of the, the modern political divisions on the uh, Arabic Peninsula come from. The British would go on to tinker. Well, not just the British. The French did this too. Um, they they would go on to tinker in that area quite a bit after World War One, along with you know what they would do in the in the Balkans in terms of just drawing lines and calling places new countries. And it, it's a really it's a really interesting study in how a, a well intended idea executed poorly can almost be worse than not executing anything at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, we we talked a little bit about this, but. What happens at the end of World War One is is that to punish the uh, well, I, I mean partially to punish, but partially to do something that they thought would, was right. The the winning side at the the Treaty of Paris or Treaty of Versailles, sorry, they really carved up, especially Austria Hungary and the Ottoman Empire afterwards, and basically said, "Listen, we choose to believe that the philosophy of national self determination is an important one." You are a, a, an old and crumbling empire full of various nations. Each of these nations needs to be given a state. And they use this as, as pretext to uh, create a lot of new countries, to carve off a lot of uh, pieces of these old empires. And, and you know, yeah, it was, it was punitive them. as well. Yeah. It was absolutely punitive. Of course it was. And I, I think one of the clearest uh, examples of this, and I, I did an episode uh, before and after World War One, just talking about some of the changes because there were so many. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the points that I brought up there that I'd like to reiterate is that if they actually believed in this stuff, you know, as a as a moral good, they wouldn't have also been fighting, for example, in Britain for uh, retention of of Ireland at the exact same time. Yeah, like the hypocrisy that goes into it is is very very apparent. So too is the Eurocentrism. They have no problems looking at uh, the Middle East and going like, well, wine goes here. Like. Yeah. Uh, but doing the same to really any of the any of the winning sides holdings is not even remotely considered or if it is even brought up is is quickly quashed yeah let's talk about the armenians a little bit i was hoping you'd bring it up because i actually studied this in in school and it's not good no it's not i i i don't think there's any any pretending otherwise i i mean i'm i'm not i'm not planning on getting into it super deep but yeah let's talk about who the armenians were it's a it's a an ethnic and religious group that existed within the ottoman empire in in fairly large numbers but one of the biggest differences between the armenians and some of these other groups is that the armenians were diffused throughout the entire empire often when you're talking about for example the egyptians most of them are in Egypt, and when they decide to revolt and assert some independence, you can basically just take off the Egypt part, and you've more or less solved the problem. Obviously, nothing is that neat and simple, but it works. The Armenians had been extremely mobile throughout Ottoman society, and uh, as a result, like yes, there were places that were majority Armenian or had a, a larger Armenian population, but there was no one area that was a historic, well, th- there was a historical Armenia, but it wasn't as easy as just simply partitioning off that historical Armenia and calling it a day when they started looking to assert their national identity. And they had a very strong national identity. I mean, 
the Armenian version of, uh, or versions, I should say, of Christianity were quite distinct, actually, from either Roman Catholicism or Orthodox Christianity. And that puts them at an interesting spot where, like, yes, they are a minority, but they're a minority with a very strong uh, core uh, identity that makes them very, uh, it makes it very easy to keep themselves distinct from from other groups. All of that makes them a more difficult problem to solve for the Ottoman Empire than some of the other ones that they were dealing at the same time, dealing with at the same time. There's also a, another sort of imagined problem in that this sort of pervasiveness of people of Armenian descent and this strength of national identity gave rise to something of a conspiracy theory that virtually all Armenians were in on some sort of plot to overthrow the Sultan, mm -hmm. which to be fair, a lot of them were members of independence movements, but so were basically every other non-Turkish yeah. uh, uh, ethnicity at this point in time. If you're, if you're not a Turk, it's real easy to sympathize with anyone trying to disrupt the, the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the Ottoman Empire was very much trying to give these people, you know, full citizenship and more rights and things like that, but they weren't always doing enough for these people. I mean, self-determination is one of those things that it's kind of hard to accommodate while not actually giving them self-determination. It's kind of not possible. Yeah. You got to just let them go mm -hmm. or not give them what they want. There's no two ways about it. A lot of this comes to a head in 1894 when, you know, looking to sort of calm this, uh, this nationalist movement, there's uh, troops sent to... There's an area in eastern Anatolia which is more Armenian than most others, and, and a lot of cities are, are majority Armenian. And by the 1890s, I mean, the Ottomans have gotten pretty good at spotting when a group is, like, <laughs> ready to separate. They've seen it a time or two before. Yeah. The Spring of Nations is a difficult thing for these big conglomerate empires to to navigate, right? Like, I mean, yeah. how do you how do you face down that idea as, as a multi-ethnic, uh, multinational empire? Mass murder? Well, <laughs> whoops, <laughs> whoops. Yeah, I mean, the, tro the troops are sent out to eastern Anatolia in order to police the Armenians, and one thing leads to another, and over the course of two years or so, between 100,000 and 300,000 Armenians are, are killed in the name of, of keeping the peace. Yeah, uh, It's enough to raise quite a bit of international outrage, and, and it's really the only reason that the, the massacre has stopped at this point in time, but... This idea of the Armenians as being a, a, an insurrectionist group within the Ottoman Empire and somehow is different than other insurrectionist groups uh, remains. It's one of those really poor logic situations where like, well, why would they have needed to kill so many of them if there wasn't a reason for it kind of thing. Mm. Like that, those, those ideas of insurrectionist groups or, or, or you know, subversive groups within society are... are they're viruses. They just kind of get in, like they yeah. they hang they're on. They're self-sustaining. It, it's it's kind of it's kind of wild how hard they are to actually get rid of once they've taken hold, and and that's absolutely the case with the Armenians. And again, it's not as though we're talking about a a, a population that was perfectly peaceful or anything like that. It's just they were no different than any other group that was fighting for independence. And they're, they're, the the fact that they were singled out is is a, an extremely strange thing. Yeah. By World War One, I, I mean, we've talked about how tenuous the situation was in the Ottoman Empire. Obviously, that's going to reignite these fears. They're worried about what exactly Russia is up to because Russia is always up to something. And one of the things that is worrying the most, uh, worrying them the most, is that one of the things that the Armenian population talks about quite a bit is rather than having a 
purely independent Armenia a potentially better option for them in their eyes, or for some of them at least, is to have an Armenia that's uh, a part of Russia that's protected by the Russians. Um, because at this time, for whatever reason, the Russians actually had a reputation for protecting religious minorities. That's going to go out the window in the next decade uh, or two. Yeah, it, But it did exist at the time. And, and that idea of uh, an explicitly pro-Russian population who is also agitating for independence is a real worry like that is an actual understandable national security threat that they should probably figure out what exactly is going on there how it's actually handled of course is not understandable in any way shape or form yeah welcome to the phil is outrage section of the podcast i mean you're waiting for it everybody's I, looking for yeah. it right good old g word it starts off with um them going to majority Armenian cities and conscripting all the men for military service in World War One, And understandably, a lot of these people were like, you're just taking us away so that our women and children are undefended. And we might be sent to fight and we might be sent to fight in like the worst possible battles so that we're, you know, unfortunately killed, quote, quote, quote. Uh, or maybe we're just going to be taken and killed. I don't know which, but either way, I don't like this at all. And they refused the orders. And so this was used by an excuse by the Ottoman officials to uh, take control of these uh, majority Armenian cities. Um, and then any tiny excuse for uh, massacre was seized upon. Mm -hmm. um, I, I read one account where there were some soldiers that were, uh, they, they, had, they had dragged some woman out of her out of her house and a few men had gone to, to defend her. And then it turns into a full-blown thousands killed massacre. Yeah, I've read that account um, too, actually. It's really terrible stuff. It goes from there to uh, full-on deportations. They're like, we're just getting all the Armenians out of out of the Ottoman Empire. So instead of focusing on the actual battles that they're losing, so they should maybe commit a little more resources there. Basically, they're forcing people from their homes and sending them sending them on these marches to uh, ostensibly consolidate them all in this eastern Anatolian region. But they're sending them from all across Turkey, and they're sending them to just walk, just walk, and often across desert. Uh, often not given food and water, and when they were, usually not sufficient, and millions died. Well, uh, millions. Let's not overstate it. That's that's unreasonable. The low range of the numbers here is 800,000 people were killed on these death marches, which at, at some points spiraled out into full-blown massacres. Not to excuse death marches somehow, yeah. but uh, you know, at, at the point when you're drugging people to death uh, or... Uh, just straight out shooting them you can't even claim the ignorance which is what they would claim is that well i didn't know they were so weak just, it's really unfortunate that they died on this you know, literal death march the top range of these numbers is about 1.5 million killed although there's there's some outliers that are saying more um i think the highest one i saw was 2.1 but that didn't seem well I wanna, substantiated i want to say uh, low 2 million is what i saw as the high range as well yeah th those ones seem like a bit of a stretch i but i i don't know i mean the problem is that we don't know there's no no one was paying that much attention no i mean well i mean there was global outrage but everyone was so wrapped up in the war that there was very little done about it i mean they were already fighting the ottoman empire it was kind of like what can we really do better and i mean obviously that's a problem but the fact of the matter is the word genocide is coined to refer to uh, the massacre of the Armenian people at this mm -hmm. point in time by the Ottoman Empire. And it's it's a bizarre thing because 
for a lot of this topic, we're talking about the Ottomans being a relatively speaking uh, uh, tolerant place in terms of ethnic minorities. This is, and they, <laughs> this is the source of my surprise throughout this entire episode about like your progression. You're talking about how progressive they are because I know how it ends. Yeah, well, they flip hard, eh? Yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 kind of like why these ones and like why this specific group yeah. and why like this and and I think I think a lot of it comes down to a, a, a horrible combination of desperation and and uh, uh, ruthless leadership that's come through a, a number of you know a series of coups and it's wild to me how quickly stuff like that can. Uh, can flip that hard, but it, it certainly did in the Ottoman Empire. There were uh, war crime trials held after the war, but unfortunately, in a lot of ways, they were uh, overshadowed by the fact that um, the end of the First World War, as we talked about a little bit, was not kind to the Ottoman Empire in any way. And for a, a you know for a political system that was already so unstable, I don't think it's really a surprise that. A, a new uh, civil war breaks out in 1919 as a as a response to all of this. There's a lot of wars that break out just after the First World War in response. There's a, a lot of internal conflicts that... Yeah, I mean, you're just arbitrarily drawing lines everywhere. It's not going to go well. No, 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 no. Uh, well, and there's a lot of very old powers that are destabilized by the whole thing. That Turkish War of Independence, I, I mean, there's not a lot of room for war crime trials after that. They're kind of busy trying to reform their entire society. Yeah. And the people who are taking part are... Are, are usually um, at least partially associated with that uh, Young Turk movement. Mustafa Kemal Pasha is the main leader uh, of the the movement that overthrows the Sultanate and uh, installs a ostensibly secular uh, democratic society and renames it Turkey. Is this when we get Istanbul? Uh, th th that was earlier than this. The, okay. the I, I, it happened yeah well, somewhere in there I, I think i put the note in the first uh first episode i can put it in again i it's there's not a hard switch there's no point in time where we go and now we call it istanbul uh but yeah by now it's it's mainly being called uh, istanbul mehmed the sixth is the last sultan of the ottoman empire his he's exiled on november 1st of 1922 uh at the end of this this civil war and that's the end of the ottoman empire and it's a it's a it's a long time coming, but also seems very, very sudden when it actually yeah. hits. They tried very hard to give the well, the line of Osman uh, the option to be a, a constitutional monarchy, and they just kind of kept saying no. Kept saying no. Interestingly, interestingly enough, the the grandson of the last Sultan was actually born in the Ottoman Empire still, and after their the, the family's exile, he lived in New York for decades and decades, and no one actually had any any idea who he was, hmm. which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, he was allowed finally to return to Turkey as a private citizen in uh, 1992. Wow. And he died in 2009 at the age of 97. Damn. Had been born in line to the throne of the Ottoman Empire in the Ottoman Empire. That's crazy. And dies in 2009. That's, that's unreal. It's yeah, crazy how fast is, the 20th century goes sometimes. I was going to say, like, this stuff is a lot more recent than we give it credit for. Mm -hmm. Like, everyone's like, ah, oh, 1800s. Like... Yo, that just happened. Yeah, there's um, there's a history podcaster I listen to, Mike Duncan, who uh, has gone on record multiple times saying that anything more recent than World War One is current events. Yeah, uh, he's got something there. Yeah, that is real tangled up. Yeah, so that's the Ottoman Empire. I mean, I don't really want to get into modern day Turkey because it's it's so different. It's yeah. so different that it's 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 kind of hard to get into, other than. Uh, as its own thing and uh, I, yeah that's that's a topic for a different day but the ottoman empire it, it's it's wild the span of time that it stretches from i mean 
this is a this is an empire that um uh, that ends the Roman Empire and then is is ended in World War One. That's yeah, a that's, that's a, a big big stretch of time. It's a busy stretch of time too. There's yeah. a lot goes down in that stretch of time. And as we keep saying, they were big. They were so big. Mm-hmm. Go look at the go look up the map of mm-hmm. the Ottoman Empire at its height. Yeah, it's huge. You'll be surprised. Yeah. Because of the timing on the whole Armenian thing, the uh, modern state of Turkey has never actually acknowledged the Armenian genocide. Yeah. I wanted to put that in there real quick. There's 29 countries who so far have actually acknowledged that that's a thing that has happened. Um, it's a it's a tricky thing. I mean, I mean, it sounds like they're denying it completely. That's not quite what it was. They both minimize it and basically say, well, that's a thing that the Ottoman Empire did yeah. and we're not the, the Ottoman Empire. So it's slightly more nuanced than that. Not saying it's a good thing, but yeah. um, it, it's not quite outright denial. So they do really consider themselves very different than the Ottoman Empire in every way, shape and form. But, you know, things don't always change that quickly, that fast yeah. or that, that like, you know, overnight uh, that drastically. So, uh, yeah, Ottoman Empire. Any questions? Any final thoughts? Well, I, I knew when we were getting into this that it was going to be interesting to see, like as we said just a few minutes ago, uh, a, a major player in so many other stories mm-hmm. last for so long and then just kind of poof, yeah, gone. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, Turkey's still there, but as you even, like... <sighs> Like Turkey is very different. Well, and it's not the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire in, in, incorporates uh, the Arabic Peninsula, and it incorporates yeah. Northern Africa, and it incorporates the Balkans. Yeah, um, it exactly. may have lost those things at the end, but so did the uh, Byzantine Empire, and we gave it credit for still being an empire, uh, empire at the beginning of all of this. Yeah, exactly. So no, I'm that that was really the only thought I had was just yes, I thought that was going to be an odd thing to wrap my head around and Mm -hmm. yes it was yeah for sure yeah well that was an excellent topic suggestion i'm really glad we got a chance to sit down and talk about this one yeah i thought i'd give you a a break and throw something a little bit more european at you again (laughs) don't worry the next one's gonna go Uh outside of europe i'm sure i'm sure i look forward to it well thanks so much for coming on today it's always a pleasure having you here yeah likewise The Ottoman Empire's fall can't easily be blamed on any one factor. Its inability to effectively manage a multi-ethnic system in an era of national self-determination didn't help things, but then again, neither did its constant conflict with Russia, or its slow reaction to modernization, or the many coups that plagued its final decades. However, for centuries, the empire was a key player in world history that is all too often glossed over. I haven't nailed down a topic yet for next episode of HI101, but I can promise that it will be back up on February 1st. The release schedule has been a little bit rough lately, but, you know, new year, new you and all that, so we'll get things back on track from here on out. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.